Well, the first verse of that last song comes from a, a psalm and uh, indicates that this uh, binding of kings is really in the hands of believers, but it's a spiritual warfare that goes on. And the passage we're going to be preaching through, uh, Revelation 12, uh, gives some indication of how we engage in that. Beginning at verse 7, War was declared in heaven. Michael and his angels were to wage war with the dragon, so the dragon and his angels made war. But he was not strong enough, neither was there any place found for him in heaven anymore. So the great dragon was expelled, that ancient serpent who was called Slanderer and Satan, who deceives the whole inhabited world. He was thrown into the earth, and his angels were expelled with him. And I heard a loud voice in the heaven saying, now the salvation and the power have come, even the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accused them before our God day and night. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not cherish their lives even up to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, yes, you who are dwelling in them, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has a little time. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as we dig into it, that you would open the eyes of our understanding and open our hearts to be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we dive into verses 7 through 9, which is as far as we're going to be able to get today, um, I thought that I would give an overview of the chapter. Last week, there were quite a number of people who had questions, were puzzled about different things. Obviously, I hadn't uh, expressed things as uh, clearly as I perhaps could have. So sometimes it's helpful to fly about a mile high and look at the terrain as a whole. Uh, that way you can see the direction that you're going. In verses 1 through 4, we have two movie clips shining on the heavens that John sees, and both clips move from Genesis 1 all the way up to just before uh, the time of Christ. They're introducing the two main characters of chapter uh, 12's drama. So verses 1 through 2 show the first character. This is the woman. This is Zion. This is the church of the Old Testament all the way from Genesis right up to just before the time of Christ in verse 2. Then verses 3 through 4 begin another snapshot, this time of Satan. It shows a summary history of Satan during the same time period from Genesis 1 all the way through up to just before the birth of Christ. So if you look at the language of verse 2 and verse 4, you'll see a similarity. It's describing the same time period. Verses 2 and 4 are describing the time just before the verse of Christ. So to repeat, verses 1 through 4 give two visions of two signs in heaven covering the same time period. Verse 5 starts with the birth of Jesus. Verses 5 through 6 give the history from the birth of Christ to A.D. 66, where most of the focus is going to be. Now, though I'm not dogmatic on this, I believe that verses 7 through 12 take place at Pentecost of A.D. 66, God's last warning to Israel that war was imminent. Now, the other alternative is to see that as beginning right at the uh, Festival of Trumpets in A.D. 66, and we discussed a lot of that, um, that timing in uh, chapter 8, but I take it as May. Not September 8, I take it as May, because I think it's more consistent with what happened in chapter 8. Now, verse 13 explains the heating up of the persecution of the church that happened in May and the months that were following after that that almost brought about the extermination of the church of Jesus Christ around the empire. Now, obviously, everybody wasn't killed. Uh, Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied that if this, this tribulation had not been cut short, everyone would have been killed. Uh, that was Christ himself prophesying. Now, the focus of verses 14 through 16 is the Jewish Christian remnant that escaped and survived in the city of Pella for the duration of the three-and-a-half-year war against Jerusalem. The focus of verse 17 is on Satan's persecution of the rest of Zion's offspring. 
Okay, that would be the Gentile uh, church that had not yet been exterminated. And according to ancient church fathers, that persecution was so intense that it did indeed almost exterminate the Gentile church, and it was ended when Nero died in AD 68. So the chapter as a whole, when you're looking at the whole chapter, you're thinking, wow, these are terrible times. It's incredibly severe persecution, and yet... Verses 10 through 11 give a statement of faith in the midst of that that Jesus is winning the absolute victory over Satan. In other words, those two verses are looking at the mess through the eyes of faith. They are saying, Jesus is winning. And everybody's looking at them, what are you talking about? Jesus is winning. You're all getting annihilated. No, Jesus is winning. And you're going to see that the church of Jesus Christ will win through him. Uh, we'll look at those two verses next time. Verses uh, 10 and 11 are the heart of the chiasm, the structure of this uh, chapter, which uh, means that they're really the heart of the book uh, as a whole. So that's an overview of where the chapter is heading. We're up to verse 7, which speaks of war breaking out in heaven, and that raises a question why would God allow war to break out in heaven? Isn't that supposed to be the place where everything's perfect? Uh, there are no tears. Everything's great up in heaven. Uh, verse 7 says, War was declared in heaven. Michael and his angels were to wage war with the dragon, so the dragon and his angels made war. Now, to explain this why, I think it's important to understand that this is not the first time that Michael and his angels fought with the devil and his angels. Uh, there were other battles that uh, occurred in the Old Testament. We're going to look at one of those. It's in Daniel chapter 10. If you uh, turn there uh, briefly, this happened during a turning point in Israel's exile in Babylon. Daniel 10, beginning to read at verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, so here is the first mention in the Bible of the name Michael uh, in regard to Michael the archangel. Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now we'll just stop there for a moment before I keep reading in Daniel 10. Daniel had been wrestling in prayer and fasting for 21 days. And verse 13 says that the moment he started praying, God gave the answer to his prayers. Yet he keeps on having to pray for 21 days because it sure doesn't seem like the answer is coming. Uh, why the delay if he has answered his prayer and sent Gabriel 21 days earlier? Well, Gabriel explains that the demonic enemies were too powerful for him to overcome, and he simply couldn't get through to Daniel. He had tried, but it was not until Michael the archangel came to help him that they were able to push their way through the demonic armies that were hindering them. So this gives just a little bit of a picture of the reality of angelic warfare and the difficulties that are involved. And what I want to do, I want to outline several significant theological points, points of information found in this paragraph uh, that I think will help us in our chapter. And the first uh, is that Michael the archangel is called one of the chief princes. That phrase is one of several reasons why I disagree rather strongly with David Chilton when David Chilton says that Michael the archangel is Jesus Christ. He's in there, he's the pre-incarnate Jesus, you know, the pre-incarnate Son of God. And in Revelation 12, he says he's the glorified um, Son of God. But that is absolutely not possible. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit. But that phrase indicates that Michael is only one of several chief princes. Second, there is a counterpart who is fighting against Gabriel and Michael. And this counterpart is called the prince of the Persian, uh, excuse me, the prince 
of the kingdom of Persia. Every country has an evil angelic prince assigned to it. And of course, there's godly angels that are assigned by God as well. And this empire had a very high prince that was assigned to it by Satan. When you think of spiritual warfare, I think you need to realize that there is a prince that's assigned over America as a whole. There's a sub um, princes that are probably over every state in America. And I want you to notice in Daniel 10 that there were other evil angelic kings over parts of the empire of Persia. Those would be the demonic rulers of the provinces or the countries that made up the empire. And apparently they all joined together with their demonic forces, their armies, to oppose Gabriel and Gabriel's army. Gabriel said in verse 13, I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia, which leads to the conclusion that good angels are not invincible or always immediately successful in war. They have to fight with all their might, and sometimes their power is overwhelmed by the enemy until they can get reinforcements. And this in turn proves that this idea of fighting is not just a formality. It is serious business, and angels may not always know the outcome of any given battle. That these are real battles is reinforced by the fact that one, this one battle went on for 21 days. That's a long time of fighting before Gabriel can get through. 21 days. Uh, verse 13 again. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now when we get back to chapter 12, don't think of the battle that goes on in chapter 12 as taking place, you know, over a period of a couple of minutes or something, just a token battle. No, there was no doubt all of the angels fighting with all of their might. I mean, they are, this is a, a desperation battle. There was a great deal at stake, and none of it was instantaneous. So why doesn't God help them by fighting the battles himself? I mean, God could overcome Satan and all of his hosts in a moment. Just a, a click of his hands, a word from his mouth, but God does not do that. Why? Well, I believe that though God aids us and he aids angels, he helps them, he does not do the fighting for us. Even angels must use all of their energies to engage the enemy. And I believe God does it in part for our own growth, our maturity, and our dependence upon him and to make clear that even though he is sovereign we have responsibilities that we have got to take seriously these wars were not won automatically and the american church i believe has lost our wars because we have as a whole given up the the weapons that god has given to us which he says are powerful they're they're mighty in god for tearing down strongholds we've given those up and we've taken the carnal weak weapons of the world and we think the wisdom of the man is the way to 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 work in the church but victory is not automatic there is strategy planning hard work spiritual warfare etc and this ties in with the next principle a principle which is just as important important as the previous one there is some connection we don't know how or why how it looks but there is some connection between the prayers and the fasting of David and the success of the spiritual battles that go on in heaven what would have happened if David had not I mean Daniel had not persevered in prayer we aren't told but it's implied that there would not have been that breakthrough in the heavenlies in this war now, what is implied here about the connection between Daniel's prayers and the success of the angels in battle, I think, is vividly displayed. And I've shared this with you before, but it's vividly displayed in Exodus chapter 17. That, in fact, when you're thinking about spiritual warfare, just try to have that image of Moses and all of his armies fighting against Amalek. It was a, a fierce uh, battle that was going on. And... Um, during that whole battle, Moses raised his hands in prayer on behalf of the Israelite army. And let me read you verses 11 through 13 of that chapter. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady 
until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. It was a direct result of Moses' prayers that Amalek was defeated. As soon as he would stop praying and he would rest, then the enemy began to win. So it's a very vivid picture of what was happening in the physical realm reflects really what goes on as well in the heavenly realm. Gabriel makes clear that it was Daniel's prayers that got these heavenly battles going. Psalm 76.3 says that it's in the temple in the house of prayer that uh, God breaks the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle. So it's in prayer that the definitive differences are made out there on the battlefield. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 14, which is the last chapter of this section that chapter 12 introduces, when we get to chapter 14, we're going to be seeing that the 144,000 who just previous to this have gone into Pella during this time, they are part of this success in the heavenlies uh, through their spiritual warfare. Now, let's keep reading in Daniel 10 because this forms the main background to Michael the archangel in Revelation 12. See, we'll, we'll resume reading at verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So Gabriel was very much involved in the national politics of Darius the Mede. It says confirming him, strengthening him. There were angelic battles that were going on that somehow are related to the mundane things like politics in that Persian empire. Okay, so with that as a background, let's go back to uh, Revelation chapter 12. And I want you to notice who is the first one to initiate this battle here in, in chapter 12. Verse 7 says, War was declared in heaven. Michael and his angels were to wage war with the dragon. So it's Michael's angels that initiate the war, and it's only in response to heaven's initiation of the war that Satan declares his war as well. It says, as the next phrase, so the dragon and his angels made war. But the good armies took the offensive. Now in terms of timing, this war started in AD 66, but that raises another question. If war started in verse 7, had wars stopped earlier? And why would they have stopped earlier? You see, angelic wars had already been happening in the Old Testament, and in your outline, uh, the previous point gives a number of those spiritual wars that have been going on. So if there were angelic battles in the Old Testament, and if war is now declared in verse 7 in AD 66, it implies that there were times that war was not happening. You can't have war starting if war had not previously stopped. And that brings up the question of why God would allow war to stop. Why would he allow these spiritual battles to stop? Now, I don't have a full answer to that question, but I think the full answer has to at least include within it what we've already covered, that there's lack of prayer. There's lack of faith on the part of the church. I think that's what Exodus 6, 17 and what uh, Daniel chapter 10 are, are, are pointing to. And when we get to chapter 14, we're going to be seeing that the 144,000 provided the prayer cover for this war. This reminds us really of uh, Revelation 8. Remember, we saw that those trumpets, the seven trumpets, they could not start sounding until the church was gathered in corporate prayer. So each one of those trumpets that summons the angelic armies flows directly out of the prayers of the saints. It really reinforces one of the applications of this section of how important spiritual warfare prayer is uh, if the Great Commission is to be fulfilled. Now let's examine the angelic participants in this war. Verse 7 divides the armies up into Michael and his angelic armies, and the dragon and his angelic armies. Now, it has recently become popular in some evangelical circles to identify uh, Michael with uh, Jesus Christ. I strongly disagree with that. In fact, I think it is nigh on to blasphemy to identify the two. Now, you can read David Chilton's 
defense of that view. He goes on page after page, but it's very confusing trying to defend that, that thing. I do not find it convincing at all. The most convincing argument that I have heard is uh, people assuming that 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 identifies Jesus as the archangel. Um, they, they say that in that passage, he will shout with the voice of an archangel. Actually, it doesn't say that. Uh, the Greek has three coordinate things that will happen. Jesus will give his command. An archangel will sound, not the archangel, but an archangel will sound, and the trumpet of God will sound. And I think J.B. Phillips' uh, translation captures the intent uh, well when he renders it this way. One word of command, one shout from the archangel, and it should actually be an archangel because there's no the in the Greek, one blast from the trumpet of God, and God in person will come down from heaven. Now, let me examine this whole debate of Michael, because I think it's, a, it's an important one. JWs, oh, they camp out on this all the time. This is very, very important. So I hope I can settle this debate to your satisfaction. Michael is only mentioned by name four times in the Scripture, in Daniel 10, Daniel 12, Jude 9, and in Revelation 12. And... Um, in Daniel 10, I do not see how anyone could see Michael as being uh, Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses do, but I don't see how, why it is that Christians have bought into this. I think some of it has to do, again, with wanting to be academically scholarly, and this is the direction that some of the big scholars who happen to be liberal are going. But let me give you eight reasons why I believe Michael is not Jesus Christ. First is probably my weakest argument. But Jesus is the God-man, not the angel-man, okay? Hebrews 2, 14 through 16 explicitly says that God the Son did not take to himself a, an angelic nature, but he took to himself a human nature, took on flesh, specifically the seed of, the, uh, of uh, Abraham. So Jesus is not an angel. And people say, well, what about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Wasn't that Jesus? Isn't he the messenger of the Lord? And that's another meaning for, for angel. And that's true uh, that uh, messenger and angel are, are synonyms. But as we'll see, both the words archangel and the Hebrew for one of the chief angels indicates that whoever this is, he is one with the angels that he leads. That's just not true of Jesus. Hebrews 1, 5 through 9, commands all angels, without exception, to worship Jesus. And that implies he is greater than the angels. Second, John has already identified Jesus with the man-child who ascends to his throne in verse 5 and who rules the nations with the rod of iron. There are four players in this chapter. There's um, the woman, there's the dragon, there's the man-child, and there's Michael. So... To make Michael Jesus not only messes with the character development, but it does so with absolutely no explanation whatsoever. It makes no sense. Think of it. Think of, think of it this way. Christ is explicitly mentioned and identified in this chapter uh, as the man-child a number of times, and as Jesus Christ, he's mentioned in verses 1, 2, 5, 10, 11, 13, and 17. Now, to be so clear in identifying who he's talking about, this is Jesus, this is the man-child, and then to introduce Michael with no explanation does not make sense. So you go from the man-child in verse 5 to Michael, who's also supposed to be Jesus in verse 7, to the man-child in verse 13 is really confusing. That does not make sense when he has so clearly identified who Christ is. But if Michael is not Jesus but he is an angel who leads Christ's armies, it makes perfect sense. Third, Michael is called one of the chief princes of the heavenly angels in Daniel chapter 10. Now, if he'd only been described as the chief over angels or the head over angels, yeah, that could refer to the pre-incarnate Son of God, but not one prince among several princes. Okay, there were seven chief princes amongst the angels, and many scholars believe, remember we've gone through seven angels sounded seven trumpets? 
They believe that the seven angels the, uh, of the Old Testament are the seven, and the seven chief princes of the Old Testament are the seven angels of, um, uh, of the book of Revelation. Now, the Jews had names for all seven, including Michael and Gabriel, but um, the only two that are named in the Bible are Gabriel and, and Michael. But here's the problem. To lump the pre-incarnate Son of God in with the other chief princes seems to make him the same kind of being as the other chief princes. And of course, that's exactly where the JWs go, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they say that he was a created angel before he became a man. So do you see the problem here? Michael was a prince among Gabriel and other princes. Well, the pre-incarnate Son of God had no peers amongst the angels. There were no peers. Hebrews 1 says that he was greater than the angels. Uh, Barnes, in his commentary, points out that the expression, one of the chief princes, makes Michael one in the rank of other angelic princes. It identifies him as a true angel. Now, I think this is why Chilton engages in blasphemy when he identifies Christ uh, with this angel. And he actually strengthens the apologetics of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, he's a great guy. I, I love what Chilton's written in his book. But even with what I teach, you've got to examine everything according to the Scripture. Do not accept what I teach. Do not accept what Chilton teaches unless you can see it in the Scripture. We have to have our consciences bound by the Word alone. Fourth, Daniel's Hebrew word for chief princes and the equivalent Greek word for archangel, very similar, uh, slightly different, but in Jude 9, argues that Michael was the lead angel, not that he was a non-angel leading other angels. There's a difference. He was the lead angel. Christ is not the first among peers. Prior to the fall, Lucifer, uh, Lucifer was the first among others, but since that time, Michael has occupied that space. But the very fact that he's called an archangel or the first among angels implies that Michael was a true angel, not a messenger in a general sense. Fifth, in Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael was said to be an angel assigned to stand guard over Israel in the Old Testament, where other angels had assignments over other countries. So uh, here's the point. Is it really appropriate to say that the pre-incarnate Son of God is an angel who's assigned this nation and you, you other angels are assigned this nation. It does not seem consistent uh, with the way Scripture deals with that theology. Sixth, Jude 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, if Michael is the Lord, why is he saying the Lord rebuke you? Okay, if he is God, if he's the pre-incarnate Son of God, as many claim, why is he appealing to God? If he was the Lord, he would be doing the rebuking himself, but he's appealing to someone greater than him. Seventh, if Michael is the Lord, why would he not dare to bring a railing accusation against the devil? The word dare not is talmao, uh, and is defined this way, to show boldness, or resolution in the face of danger, opposition, or a problem, to dare to bring oneself to do something. So it means that Michael did not have the boldness to take on a Satan by himself because of the dangers of doing so. It implies that Satan was greater or stronger than Michael. That does not fit the character of the pre-incarnate Son of God at all, and it certainly does not even fit the character of the incarnate Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, as the God-man, would certainly dare to rebuke Satan, and indeed he did so many times while he was here on earth, commanding demons to be quiet, you know, uh, saying, get behind me, Satan, for it is written. Eighth, the word Michael means who was like God and implies that even the mightiest angel is not like God. So the bottom line is that Michael is the angelic general who leads the elect angelic armies of God. He's one of seven generals or chief princes leading seven armies altogether. And he's one of the seven chief angels of Revelation, and he was the first among those chief angels. I think that's the meaning, first angel, archangel. And the dragon, obviously, is Satan. 
who uh, also has a whole hierarchy of leadership positions for the angels underneath him. Now, some people have thought that demons are disembodied men. Uh, no. Uh, disembodied men, they go straight to hell or they go straight uh, to paradise. Uh, so they're, they're called angels, and they're the fallen angels that we looked at in verse 4. But just as Daniel's war was not a token war, this war was not a token war. Verse 7 says, Michael and his angels were to wage war with the dragon, so the dragon and his angels made war. And take a look at verse 8. Verse 8 adds the note about the dragon, but he was not strong enough. In Daniel 10, Gabriel was not strong enough to be able to stand up to the prince of Persia, but here Satan was not strong enough to be able to stand up to Michael and all of the armies uh, that he led. But why say he's not strong enough if this is just a token battle, if there was not really energetic battles that were going on, if he didn't have a chance? That phrase implies there was real war, they're fighting in earnest, uh, and they have to fight in earnest if they are to win, and Satan was eventually overwhelmed. Now, we aren't told how long the battle went on. The battle in Daniel 10 went on for 21 days before uh, Gabriel could get through to Daniel, and verse 20 of that chapter says he had to go continue to fight. He had to rejoin Michael. Well, that implies Michael's still fighting, and he just has the diversion, and he allows Gabriel to come talk to Daniel, then he goes back to join Michael in fighting. So we're not told how long that battle went on. Um, we don't know if the prince of Persia was routed or not, but based on the history of Persia, it appears that there was an ebb and flow with victories on both sides. Too many Christians look at spiritual warfare as if there are no stakes involved or as if winning it's so easy for, uh, you know, the good angels. That is not the case. Much is at stake. Battle lines vary from period to period. And I think it largely depends on the state of the church, the faith of the church, whether we're gathered in prayer or not. So my take home from that is we need to be earnest in spiritual warfare. Now, near the end of the section of this chapter, uh, 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 near in a chapter at the end of this section, chapter 14, we're going to see that the 144,000 virgin believers that comprised the Jewish remnant formed the human contingent and that they were the major part of this victory against Satan. But this verse simply summarizes the victory by saying, neither was there any place found in him in heaven anymore, so the great dragon was expelled. And at the end of verse 9, it says that all of his angels were expelled from heaven as well. He was thrown into the earth, and his angels were expelled with him. So AD 66 was the time when heaven was forever purged from the presence of all evil. Uh, it's my belief, though I'm not dogmatic on this, that the heavenly battle lasted from May 18 until September 8, when and we saw in Exodus, uh, not Exodus, Revelation chapter 8, the first trumpet sounded. So basically, the... This is dealing with the heavenly battles, and as soon as those were done, the, Michael is bringing his warfare to earth. One trumpet after another sounds on earth. Now, be it that as it may, verse 11 ascribes this angelic victory to the saints. And so the question comes, if the angels were doing all the fighting here, how can he attribute it to the saints in verse 11? And we'll look at that more next time, but I think there is clearly a link between the spiritual warfare of believers and the spiritual warfare of angels. So that's a point that we just cannot forget. Now, some people are skeptical of these kinds of things taking place in AD 66, unless there are historical records to back them up. And my reply to them is, well, then how, why do you believe Genesis, uh, the miracles in Genesis 1? Why do you believe the miracles and the ten plagues? Have you got historical things to back those up? No, that's not the way Scripture works. We don't believe Scripture if history backs it up. It's not history that judges Scripture. It's Scripture that judges history. And if God said it happens, I believe it, whether there's historical evidence or not. Let God be true and every man a liar. In any case, these are invisible battles, right? Why would you even expect to see any kind of a historical fulfillment? But... It just so happens that these invisible battles were made visible by God for at least a short period of time. And let me give you some quotes from early historians of their witness to these huge battles in heaven. 
Now, I gave these quotes in chapter 8, at least most of them, but I think they're worth repeating because um, they probably refer to the same event. These battles were recorded by unbelieving Jews, two ancient church fathers, and one Roman historian. Let me quote the unbelieving Jewish accounts first. Uh, Yosipan wrote in Hebrew, and his book has been recently translated into English. He said, Now it happened after this that there was seen from above over the Holy of Holies for the whole night the outline of a man's face, the like of whose beauty had never been seen in all the land, and his appearance was quite awesome. Uh, moreover, in those days were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of Judah, all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. When the holiday of Shavuot came in those days during the night, the priests heard within the temple something like the sound of men going and the sound of men marching in a multitude, going into the temple, and a terrible and mighty voice was heard speaking, let's go and leave this house. Now those Jews probably didn't see the whole spiritual warfare that was going uh, on being described in this chapter, but I think God opened their eyes to make them witnesses of at least the beginning of it. This unbelieving Jew would not have made these kinds of things up because that would have played right into the hands of Christians who would have used that as an apologetic against him, right? So I think it's really a very strong testimony coming from a Jewish historian. Josephus, another Jewish historian who witnessed the war, said this, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunset, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. So he saw angelic warfare. Didn't make a believer out of him, but it made a witness out of him, right? An ancient Christian historian from the 4th century wrote a history of this war that was based on earlier Jewish histories he had in his possession. He said, also after many days a certain figure appeared of tremendous size which many saw, just as the books of the Jews have disclosed, and before the setting of the sun there were suddenly seen in the clouds chariots and armed battle arrays by which cities of all Judea and its territories were invaded. Moreover, in the celebration itself of the Pentecost, the priests entered, entering the interior of the temple at nighttime that they might celebrate the usual sacrifices, asserted themselves at first to have felt a certain movement and a sound given forth, afterwards even to have heard shouted in a sudden voice, we cross over from here. So that historian's talking about earlier Jewish plural accounts of this. The Roman historian Tacitus records these angelic battles from a Roman perspective. He said there had been seen hosts joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleam of arms, the temple illuminated by a sudden radiance from the clouds. Uh, one more. The early church historian Eusebius said he had access to very early historical records. Uh, we've obviously lost those since then. But he said, not many days after the feast, on the 21st of the month of Artemisium, a wonderful specter was seen which surpasses all belief, and indeed that which I am about to tell would appear a prodigy were it not related by those who had seen it. And unless the subsequent miseries had corresponded to the signs, for before the setting of the sun there were seen chariots and armed troops on high wheeling through the clouds around the whole region and surrounding the cities. And at the festival called Pentecost, the priests entering the temple at night, according to their custom to perform the service, said they first perceived a motion and noise, and after this a confused voice saying, let us go hence. Now, I don't read those accounts to prove that the Bible is true. I believe the Bible's account, no matter what the historical records say, but these are witnesses of the very thing that this scripture said would happen and which chapter 8 has already identified as being in A.D. 66. And they say it's in A.D. 66, so the dates correspond. But that brings up the question that several people have asked me in this last week. Why did God allow Satan and his evil angels to even have access to heaven's court in the first place? It just seems so odd. 
Now, I may not have the definitive answer for you. Maybe some of you will come up with better answers than, than I have come up with. But before I try to answer it, let me try to demonstrate beyond any shadow of a doubt that demons did have access and Satan did have access to heaven's court long after he fell. First of all, turn to Job. It's right before the Psalms. And this is a passage that illustrates what uh, Revelation 12, verse 10 describes as Satan being the accuser of the brethren. Satan had accused believers before God's thrones uh, many, many times before. Uh, we'll start reading at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan, so it's implying he's usually not hanging around heaven, but from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. I think that's where Satan's domain was. That's where his kingdom was, was on the earth. He's managing his kingdom, walking all over the earth, but he still has the ability once in a while to appear in the courtroom of heaven. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your faith, face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay? He's in heaven. He does exactly the same thing in chapter 2. He's not successful with Job, so he asked permission from God to be able to do more. But he is the accuser of the brethren. That would never again happen after A.D. 66. No longer has access to heaven. Turn next to 1 Kings 22. This is a, such an odd passage. In fact, even bringing it up, you're going to want me to explain a whole bunch of stuff about it, which I won't get into, but 1 Kings 22 and uh, verses 19 through 23. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. And I want you to notice that God does not do all of the work of the kingdom. He delegates responsibilities. He even elicits ideas from his angels, right? They have to think and strategize, come up with good plans. He doesn't do all the thinking for them, right? God could have done all of those things just in an instant. But God does not want his creatures to act like robots. Even though he's sovereign over every detail, including the actions of evil spirits, their actions are significant. They must be responsible. Anyway, there's an evil spirit who comes up to the heavenly court to see what's going on, and he can't help but offer his evil plan. Now, perhaps he thinks he can thwart God's plan. Maybe he thinks he, he's going to fool God into thinking he's going to do something cool here, but it's actually going to undermine it. We aren't told his motives, but we do know from the story that God uses even evil men and evil angels to thwart Satan's plans. I see it as kind of the kingdom, fighting against the kingdom. Anyway, continuing to read in verses 22 and following. Then a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the theological rabbit trails that you're probably wondering about now. I just want you to think about one central fact. Did demons have access to heaven? Yes, they did. Very clearly, they did. Why? Well, I believe that God had a perfect plan and order for the reversal of every aspect of the fall. 
There were some things that were reversed prior to Christ's coming because in God's plan, he was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, so he could provisionally do some things, but they're all only provisional. And the Spirit could not be poured out until Christ is historically slain, even though provisionally they could partake of the Spirit. So anyway, there is an order and a plan. And in the... Um, the festival handout that I gave to you was a week or two ago. I laid out all of the different festivals and the order that God was going to fill these out. Well, the festival of trumpets was pointing to God's call to arms, um, you know, the Jewish war. Festival of Yom Kippur refers to the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, purifying it, then after a process of time coming out and declaring everything to be shalom, to be clear. The Tabernacles Festival refers to AD 70 and beyond. It's the scattering of the Jews and it's the ingathering of the Gentiles into the church. Well, you study those orders in there and you see, oh, okay, I can see why God allowed these demons to continue to have access to heaven until AD 66, at which time uh, he ends it. Uh, part of the answer was given a couple of weeks ago that Israel itself stood as a symbol of the church and the crossing of the Jordan River points to AD 70. Um, beyond that, I don't know. I have no idea why he puts up with evil at all. You know, why didn't he just kill all men right at the time that Adam fell? I don't know. Even the names of Satan give clues on the battles that he engages in. Verse 9 calls him the great dragon, and this shows the immensity, the, what a formidable enemy that Satan really was. Now, because I uh, waxed eloquent far too long last week on that one, I'm not going to say much about it except to say he was an incredibly fearful, fearsome enemy. Dragon slayers risked their lives in fighting uh, dragons, and if you read much uh, history, you know, people think that's all mythology. It's not. You read much ancient history, and you'll see these historians saying that there were communities who would get so absolutely fed up with what we call dinosaurs eating uh, their cattle and sometimes eating their kids that they would hire a warrior to go out and fight. And how many warriors died trying to kill the dragon, you know, trying to kill what we call a dinosaur? There were a lot. The image represents Satan as a formidable foe. But verse 9 also calls Satan that ancient serpent. This is saying that the person who spoke through the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 was Satan. Satan was behind that serpent. Serpents can't talk. People say, oh, that's all mythology, you know, talking serpents. No, uh, out in Ethiopia, we knew a great deal about demon-possessed animals. And yes, demons can speak even through animals, just like they can speak through people. And a lot of times, they don't even use the vocal cords. They'll speak right out of the stomach of the person. Uh, but that was the first demon-possessed animal in, 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 in history. In any case, God used the cursed serpent as an image or a symbol of the cursed Satan. He's also called Diabolos, which is translated as slanderer here, as devil in other um, uh, translations. Wow, after you, we've read what we did about Job, what a perfect name. He is the slanderer of the brethren. He's also called Satan, which means adversary, and of course, he's the enemy of our souls. And the last name that he is given is Haplanon, the deceiver. He's the deceiver of the Oikumenen, or the Roman world. He was behind that empire. But the last two phrases indicate that it wasn't just Rome that felt Satan's presence. Israel did too. Verse 9 ends by saying, he was thrown into the earth, should be translated land, he was thrown into the earth and his angels were expelled with him. Into the earth is Astain Gain and refers to the land of Israel. So that was the specific part of planet earth that these angels were cast out of heaven to. So between AD 66 and 70, most, if not all, of the demons of the world were probably congregated in this area. If you lived in that area, it'd be a pretty scary thought to think about. And, by the way, it explains the incredibly bizarre behavior of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish soldiers during that time. Very extremely bizarre. Well, they were inundated with demons. So that's the meaning of the text. 
Uh, what further applications should we make? I've already made some applications, but let me end with six more. First, the G Church of Jesus Christ should not take, always be taking a defensive posture. We should take our cues from the angels of heaven in verse 7 and declare war on Satan's kingdom. We should go after everything that Satan has captured, declaring it to be the Lord Jesus Christ, praying over those things, and uh, taking everything and every thought captive to Christ and eventually casting the demonic out of earth just as earlier they had been cast out of heaven. Rather than constantly reacting to what Satan's angels are doing, let's take the initiative. Let's declare war on him. Let's go on the offensive. That's what we do when we stand outside the abortion clinic and we read imprecatory prayers and, and uh, we ask God to uh, take down these strongholds. That's what we do when we go to City Hall. We speak against uh, evil agendas or when we visit congressmen, when we oppose statism. Second, from verse 8, let us be encouraged that Satan is not strong enough to resist a united assault on his kingdom. If the church of Jesus Christ would only unite, we could say, greater are those who are with us than those who are with the enemy. Hopefully that phrase can give you faith that this fight is winnable. Praise God. I mean, the dragon was not strong enough to win, right? Be encouraged by that phrase. Third, since Satan cannot accuse you before heaven's throne any longer, the only way he could be successful in bringing his accusations is if you listen to him or you listen to his emissaries. He didn't have access. Just ignore what he has to say to your soul. You are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is so wonderfully communicated in the fact that the accuser of the brethren is cast out of heaven, cast down to the earth. Fourth, don't get bitter at the world. Feel sorry for the world. Verse 9 says that the whole world is deceived by Satan. They think what they're doing is okay, but they're deceived. So feel sorry for them. Pray that God would undeceive them. Fifth, all it takes for unbelievers to lose that demonic deception and bondage is to get converted. So tell unbelievers the truth. Uh, witness to them. Watch the Holy Spirit. Take your scriptural witness and tear down strongholds. And last, realize that Satan's expulsion from heaven is but a foretaste of his complete expulsion from the earth. This chapter will indicate this is just the beginning of a long, long war with Satan's kingdom. Uh, Zechariah 13.2 prophesies the end result of that war. It prophesies there's coming a time when every demon will be cleansed from the earth. There will not be any idolatry. There will not be any demons left upon the earth. There will be a day when that's all cleansed out. Jesus promised that of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there would be no end. May we be a part of that process. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement that it gives to us to persevere, to engage the enemy, to not grow disheartened, but to fight the good fight with all of our might. I pray that you would bless this, your people, as they seek to engage the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, in this great spiritual uh, battle and war of the ages. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.